I, at that moment on that Good Friday evening, was for the first time in my life speaking with a demon who was speaking out of the body of this young man whom I knew. And from then on that summer, I had a crash course in what it's like to be an exorcist. There is a war happening all around us all the time. It's the war for our souls and for our eternal life. Father Ambrose, thank you for sitting down with me. Thank you, Lila, for the invitation. It's wonderful to talk with you. I got to speak with you yesterday at St. Michael's Abbey, yes. which was a wonderful experience. We're going to talk about exorcism today. Okay. And the spiritual warfare, Satan, God, angels, demons. All the best things, <laughs> all, the, all the wildest things. All the wildest <laughs> things. This is an episode, not just for Catholics or Christians, but anyone who's interested in these topics. And I know there's a lot of interest a lot of interest kind of right now, right? So thank you for coming You're to sit down and talk about this. One of our sponsors today is Seven Weeks Coffee. Seven Weeks Coffee, as you may have heard before in the podcast, I've talked about it before, is my favorite coffee brand. So this is what I drink every single morning when I wake up. My husband makes me a cup. My favorite roast right now is Ethiopia Medium. It is smooth and balanced and delicious. This is gourmet coffee that is pesticide-free, organic, low acid, and it's just amazing. It's amazing coffee. The best part about Seven Weeks Coffee, the reason that I am a proud supporter of this coffee company is that they give 10% of all of their revenue, not just profits, to the pro-life movement. They're supporting Pregnancy Resource Center. So every time you drink a cup of coffee, you are part of building the pro-life movement. It's called Seven Weeks Coffee because at seven weeks is when the baby's heart is beating and it's about the size of a coffee bean. If you wanna order Seven Weeks Coffee, join the coffee club with me. You can use the code Lila at checkout for 10% off your order. Check it out, you're gonna love Seven Weeks Coffee. Let's start with, and you are, let's also make sure folks know you are an exorcist. I have worked as an exorcist. That's mm -hmm. right. Every in a, every priest has that possibility. And uh, so part of my priestly ministry has involved deliverance ministry and exorcism. So that's, yes, is a part of my priesthood and has been for, for the entirety of my priesthood. Okay. I can't wait to get into what that looks like, what that means. Okay. But let's start with you, who you are today. Okay. So your father Ambrose. Father tell Ambrose us about Christ. The, right, my, my name is Father Ambrose Christ. Okay. I'm a Norbertine canon regular from St. Michael's Abbey here in Orange County, California, and recently also from uh, Corpus Christi Priory in Springfield, Illinois. So I'm dividing my time between two houses of our order, one in Illinois and here. My, my home community is St. Michael's Abbey. So I'm a Norbertine priest. Wonderful. What is that? What is a Norbertine? Yeah, what is that? Okay, what is so, a Norbertine? Explain that for people listening. Good. So in, in the Catholic priesthood, there are different ways of being a Catholic priest. And uh, my style of the Catholic priesthood follows uh, a religious order founded 900 years ago, a little more than 900 years ago, which is a, uh, we are canons regular. That means we're priests who live together in monasteries like monks. We pray together, we work together. It's a common life and we take the religious vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. So we're following one of the many traditions in Roman Catholicism of following the spirituality of a particular saint or a particular uh, lifestyle. And mine is one that follows that order founded by St. Norbert of Xanten in 1121. So wow. that's, a, 
that's kind of probably too much information, but it's a little corner of religious life in the Catholic Church that also involves the priesthood. And uh, I, I come from a thriving monastery here in Orange County, a large and thriving and growing community. It is thriving. I go there and there's tons of people, not just yes. priests and religious, but lay people walking around, hanging yes. out. It's a, a hot spot. People love yes. it there. Monasteries are supposed to be kind of like lights on the hilltop, mm. direct, you know, drawing people to uh, Jesus Christ. So, and it's rare to see that in the modern world. Yes. I think most people have never encountered a monastery I in, hope, unless yes. they went to like Italy, you know, <laughs> right. or something like that. Right. And in fact, no, I think if you know where to look, even in our country and certainly in this region, mm -hmm. you can find uh, these lights shining on the hills. And I hope people come in and visit us there in St. Michael's Abbey in Silverado Canyon. So wonderful. Well, let's get into exorcism in a minute. But okay. first, I want to hear how you knew you were called to be a okay. priest. Great. Okay. Well, that's a, yeah. Uh, we often, we priests often get that question because it's so unusual for someone, for a man to um, forego life in the world and forego family, a wife of my own and a family of my own and to follow Jesus Christ more closely like this, which is what we understand ourselves to be doing. So I grew up in Colorado. My family, my family are all still there and uh, a very kind of ordinary parochial Catholic upbringing, went to the parish school you know, live my life with my family, attending mass regularly, receiving the sacraments. I went to a Jesuit boys school for high school and then off to college, university, college and university. And I was pursuing kind of an academic career path, um, studying history and political science and the classical languages, ancient languages. And uh, so I was definitely on that route. I always had this inkling in the back of my mind that maybe God was asking me mm. to be a priest. I wasn't, I didn't take that very seriously, Lila, until I started uh, running more quickly away from the Lord in college, like many young people do. So uh, I got to know the Norbertine order through a very providential set of circumstances. And I visited an abbey of our order in Pennsylvania. I, I really fell in love with the idea of the priesthood joined with the monastic life mm -hmm. and uh, this ancient tradition of how to live the Christian life in this very mm -hmm. focused and intense way. So I was in graduate school in England at Oxford University, and I was then realizing that I had to stop running from the Lord. Mm -hmm. So maybe some of your viewers and listeners have heard the story of St. Augustine of Hippo, who was kind of a wayward youth, and he definitely was running away from the Lord. And he stopped running, and he, he said something that I got to know St. Augustine through his writings mm -hmm. and in my studies very intimately. And so he he was a friend of mine, as it were, and I was I saw in his life very much of my own life as a young man. Mm -hmm. He said, our hearts are restless until they rest in you, O Lord. And I was living this amazing life in graduate school on a very prestigious scholarship at Oxford University, had everything, I had the world at my fingertips. And I was so restless, my heart was so restless. So I finally stopped running and I looked around to different monasteries of our order in England and in Belgium and in Philadelphia and finally found my way to St. Michael's Abbey in Southern California. And when you said you were running from the Lord, yes. and it used that language. What does that mean? It meant that I knew I knew what God's I knew very clearly what God's holy will would be for my life. Not necessarily whether I would be a married man or a priest or a consecrated religious, mm -hmm. but I knew that he wanted me to do to, to obey his law mm. and to follow the 10 commandments and to live a thoroughly Christian life. And I was wrestling with that. I didn't mm. want to do that always. I wanted to be a wayward youth, you know, drinking too much and womanizing and, mm. and all of the things that 
that young people can fall prey to, mm. right? If the Lord is not the center of their life. I intuited, I knew that the Lord wanted to be the center of my life. And I was running away from that. Now, there's such a contradiction, I think, for the modern sensibility mm -hmm. of a religious who's mm -hmm. celibate. Yes. Because it's enough for people to think, oh, I'm going to get married and be monogamous. I mean, that in and of itself is a debate for some people today who say yes. monogamy is not natural or possible for yes. uh, especially men. And so there's this conversation happening about that. But then to have someone say, well, not only am I... Uh, you know, I'm not monogamous. I'm even more so I'm celibate. So there's, you know, that's the life choice for me. And it's a dedication and obedience now to God. How does that work for a priest? Yes. What if there's people listening right now who are wondering, that's weird. Something's yes. weird with this. There's well, something then, unnatural then I would ask What's them, your... I would say, well, what about the life of our savior, Jesus Christ? He was a celibate. What about the apostles who were called, you know, many of whom were married when they started following the Lord? But we understand from the Acts of the Apostles, we understand that they put away their wives and their families for the sake of the gospel to follow Christ more closely. That's what, that's what we learn from the early Christian church. So there, what we learn from the Holy Scriptures and especially from the Acts of the Apostles, we learn that celibacy is a gift. Mm -hmm. It's a vocation, it's a call and a gift, not for everybody, but for those to those who are called to that, God gives the grace to live it. And it's just so free and beautiful and challenging mm. and difficult, mm. but it's a really, it's a beautiful life. Um, there is that beautiful story from the gospel, the rich young man who comes to the Lord and says, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and the Lord says, well, go and sell everything and give what you have to the poor and come and mm. follow me. And that man, the gospel says, goes away sad mm. because he can't do it. He didn't have that call. So not everybody has that call. Mm. Everybody, every believer, every man and woman are, is called by their biology to live as a married person. That's, what mm -hmm. the, that's how the Lord built us. That's how God built us. Uh, and he calls some people out of that natural state of marriage into what we call a supernatural vocation of celibacy and for those men who are called to ordained ministry as a priest. So, so mm -hmm. that's, I mean, that's in a nutshell. And um, it's a beautiful, liberating, it, there's a freedom that comes through the religious profession of the vows, poverty and chastity, your celibacy for the mm -hmm. sake of the kingdom and obedience. We, we ministers of the church, we are meant to be at the, at the disposal of the whole church, the whole people of God. And so that freedom comes from, from these mm -hmm. vows, which free us to be completely the Lord's. Hmm. It's beautiful. Well, so many have spiritually benefited, myself included. Well, so thank, thank you. you for your <laughs> yes welcome. to your vocation. <laughs> yes. um, my audience knows I'm very Catholic, so yes. I, I love the I love the gift of our religious and our priests. Where would we be without our priests? We wouldn't have our church. Um, we wouldn't have our Catholic church. I so, have one more thing yes, to say about please that. Do. I, yeah. Just one more little yep. thing, because especially for folks who are watching and listening who might not understand Catholicism so much, which is perfectly understandable, we are meant to be visible signs on earth, we celibates are meant to be visible signs on earth of the state that everybody will live in heaven. Um, we will, we are supposed to be like, like the heavenly state where, you know, marriage lasts until death parts the couple. And of course that relationship, because of the intimacy that they share carries on into heavenly glory, but not as marriage, marriage ends and there is no marriage in heaven. And so we celibates are supposed to be, we consecrated people are supposed to be a sign of the, the heavenly life mm -hmm. that we will all live one day mm -hmm. 
on the other side of the veil. So it's just a little bit of an yeah. icon. So we're, we're supposed to be like an icon, a living icon. Mm. And that's because communion in heaven is going to be even more, more perfect and intimate than exactly. a marriage, which exactly. is crazy to think about and the, beautiful to think right, about. Because the, the, the church is the bride of Christ. We are the members of the church, which is the bride of Christ. So that spousal relationship with our Lord, the bridegroom, the divine bridegroom, the savior will be every bit as intimate for every person in heavenly glory. That's, that's the union that will be the most perfect. Beautiful. Yeah. So when you became a priest, did you yes. think that you would end up being, at least for a period of time, an exorcist? In no way. In no way. You're so, like, that's, that's not what I was signing up for. I, I, I didn't ever imagine that that would be a part of my priestly ministry. And in fact, those priests who are doing the work of exorcism and deliverance ministry usually say that. If there's some priest out there who strives or in some way wants to be an exorcist or functioning as an exorcist, that's usually not a very good sign because it's not a it's not the sort of thing that we should aspire to exactly. So what how did you become an exorcist? Yes, it's a great question. The monasteries are often places where people who are struggling with all kinds of things, psychological issues, spiritual um, wounds or issues, or in this case, very serious spiritual wounds or issues like demonic obsession or infestation or possession, they they come to the monasteries to seek help because a lot of people know that's a place where I might find help and I can't find it anywhere else. Mm -hmm. So it's not unusual for an abbey like mine to have people coming and asking for this sort of spiritual help of deliverance from demonic influences in their lives. So uh, a few years into my priest, I've been a priest for 15 years now, and a few years after my ordination, there was a young man um, with whom I had a, a kind of a, a paternal relationship. I knew his family well. He was receiving some um, spiritual counsel and, and his family were very closely associated with our Abbey. Mm. And it turned out that as he was um, wrestling with some very serious psychological issues and seeking psychiatric care and even some kind of psychiatric collapse in his life, it became obvious to those who were trying to help him that there was something more going on than merely the psychological or the psychiatric. And uh, it was on Good Friday that year that uh, I had retired. I had gone to bed a little bit early, not, not super early. Monastic life has short nights and long days, but especially at the end of Holy Week, the Sacred Triduum, we're very, very busy and a lot of time in church. Mm -hmm. And so I, was, I, I had retired and someone came in, uh, awoke me in my room in my monastic cell and said, this person is here. He needs your help right now. So I, at that moment on that Good Friday evening was for the first time in my life speaking with a demon who was speaking out of the void, out of the body of this young man whom I knew in our Abbey parlor. A couple of people were holding him down and a priest confrere, an older priest who had been doing some of this work was there with me but I was the right priest for the job because of the, the relationship that I already had with this young man in his, in his life. So I was thrown into a very serious crisis of diabolical uh, manifestation in this man's life. And from then on that summer, I had a crash course in what it's like to be an exorcist. As it turned out, um, in that particular man's life, he needed the major rite of exorcism. So that's very unusual. Uh, most people who wrestle with the demonic in their lives, well, all of us wrestle with the demonic in our lives, we call it temptation. Hmm. Temptation is 
a place where demons are involved. Even as every moment of our life, there are angels involved in our lives. We don't think about that very often and we don't usually see it, although sometimes people do, but the angels and the demons are at war for our souls constantly. So whenever we feel ourselves tempted to sin, there are demons involved with that. So that's a very low grade kind of diabolical influence in our lives. There's also obsession. There's also uh, oppression. Oppression is less serious than obsession. And then there's possession. There are some statistics that exorcists share, people who do a lot of this work. It's a tiny percentage of people who ask for the ministry of deliverance from priests in the church. A tiny percentage, less than 1% need the major rite of exorcism because they're actually possessed. That's extraordinarily unusual. Explain the difference for okay. folks listening. What is obsession yes. versus oppression versus okay. possession in terms of the That's manifestation? How that feels or what that mm -hmm. seems like. So oppression, so these are basically working from the outside in of our interior life. Temptation is a very exterior kind of thing. Now, demons as angels, demons are angels, they're fallen angels. So they're the same category of created spirit that the Lord created, you know, they're created by God. Um, and a third of the angels fell. We learned that from the Holy Scriptures. So there are twice as many good angels as there are fallen angels. And they're, they, the, the fallen angels hate God and his will. They hate his plan. They try to um, un overturn it. They try to uh, convince people to follow them in their rebellion. And um, there's a lot we could say about that, Lila. Uh, to put your your to put all of our hearts at ease about that, you know, mm. all of that is under the huge overarching umbrella of God's will. Mm. Even what's happening, even what the demons are doing, God permits that because He knows that the victory is won. He knows that Jesus Christ, our Savior, wins in the end and wins already. So when people are struggling with temptation or something more serious, it's because God permits it which is a great mystery. But so it's not like there's an evil God and a good God and they're somehow at war. Not mm -hmm. at all. Uh, everything that happens, St. Yeah. Paul says in the, in the letter to the Romans, mm -hmm. everything works for the good for those who love God. Everything works for the good. I've, heard, I've heard it said that uh, the Lord permits it for, like you're saying, bringing out greater good and the sanctification of yes. those people, even yes. if they're being afflicted and it wasn't their fault in any way, yes. that God is going to do amazing things yes. with that person. They're cre he's creating this, it's like a master soul that he's yes. helping develop in that person. So in a way, it's a crown of glory, even though it's a huge cross, but yes. you need the cross before the crown of exactly. glory. That's exactly right. And and the people the people I've encountered who wrestle in these more serious ways with the, with the demonic, they are people on a fast road to holiness mm. very often, especially when they start to embrace the means at their disposal through the church, the sacraments and and um, these rites of exorcism and so forth. It's beautiful. Their purification is intense. Our next sponsor is Public Square. Public Square is the Yelp for conservatives. This is a group of 50,000 businesses, 50,000 businesses that share your pro-life, pro-family, pro-liberty values. So instead of shopping at companies that oppose your values, you can support companies that love and support your values. These are companies like Every Life, the diaper company that I've talked about that is amazing diapers that are pro-life, supporting the pro-life movement, and so many other companies that you can find in most industries. You can check them out at Public 
publicsquare.com. That's publicsq.com or download the app at the link in the bio and be part of the growing movement to change how we do business in America to shore up the American family. Check out Public Square, publicsq.com or download the app at the link in the bio. So you asked about, about okay, so that's um, temptation. We're all, we're, we all know what that feels like. Angels and demons can touch our imagination and our memory. So angels can manipulate material things. Mm -hmm. They helped create the material world. God created the material world through the ministry of the angels. We learned from the early church fathers. And so usually the way that we experience temptation is that they stir up some memory or they stir up some passion, some emotion. They amplify some emotion or they put into our mind an image that's already there in our memory that they can select and make present to our imagination. So they're they're involved in our imagination and our memory. So do they have access to our memories? They do. And they know our memories. They can see them as it were. They can see because those are material things the way that our the, the way that our mind works and the way that we know that that involves our corporeality it involves our body and our brain so mm-hmm. so they can they can manipulate those things it's why it's one of the reasons why it's really important that we are careful about what we put into our minds what we see what we read that's why pornography is such a a huge um a huge epidemic of bad because those images stay there even mm-hmm. if you don't remember them and a demon can take one of those and present it to your imagination. So I know you're going to explain the oppression, possession, yes. and obsession. But yes. on that point, an important question I think and people may have is every time that someone has a bad thought or they recall a bad memory or they have a bad feeling about someone, maybe they feel resentment or bitterness or lust or anger or greed or one of the sins, right? Right. Is that from a demon or? No. Okay. No. Sometimes though it's from a demon. It can be amplified by demons. So okay. so the thing is all of those passions you just uh, enumerated, greed and anger and resentment and lust. Now, some of those words you use are actual sinful mm-hmm. feelings, but feelings themselves are not sinful mm-hmm. and they're also not virtuous. Mm-hmm. The emotions are pre-moral. They're, they're movements of our body and our and our interiority towards some stimulus. And that's, that can be good or it can be bad. It depends on what we do with it. So what the demons can't do is they don't touch our will. They don't, cho- they don't touch how we choose things or what we affix our will to. We say what I'm owning mm. as mine. So I might feel angry. Sometimes we should feel angry. Sometimes you should um, be attracted sexually and physically mm. to another person, right? I mean, that's mm. not bad. But if, if, if we um, give in to the demonic part of that and that's, amplified or exaggerated or misdirected or misplaced and we own that then we have succumbed to the temptation as it were so is that obsession what no that, that would ju- that's still temptation that's just so, temptation so okay. um i would say then the next the next sort of degree of severity would be oppression oppression um and that would be you know that can be external or it could be internal and that's um you know let's say i'm going to try to think of, think of an example let's say somebody um has really intrusive thoughts of resentment. Um, you know, that there's some there, there's some really or understandable wound, maybe some abuse in their family or something, and and they they uh, hate their father mm. and they have a hard time forgiving their father, which is totally understandable, right? But let's say that they have at some point in their life invited a kind of, I don't ever want to give this up 
I'm going to nurse this resentment. I'm going to live with this resentment. I'm going to love this resentment. That's very easy then for a demon to affix itself to that and say, I'm never going to let you forget this. And so like an obsessive thinking about that resentment, that could be, that's a kind of a, that would be a sort of a symptom of oppression. If let's say that uh, something like that becomes so ingrained in the person where even though they're, let's say they have forgiven their father and they've made it made peace with this difficult past and they've, they're following the Lord closely and they're trying to live in love and they choose, they say, I'm not going to, I don't want to resent him. But it's like, there's a, almost like a mind worm, like somebody else almost inside of them speaking to them that, you know, that would be a, an example of something that's probably more like obsession. So it's a, a tighter hold on the person's interiority by some kind of a de demonic force where the person is having a hard time distinguishing their own personality from this other personality that's inside of them. And when that becomes so extreme that the person's own personality can recede or disappear and this other person, the demonic person can take over their body completely and manifest itself through them, we would call that uh, possession. In other words, the demon has taken possession of the person's body and they're still in there and they're still free to choose, but they might not be able to choose what they're doing with their body or they might not be able to choose where they're going or what they're saying. So in the case of the young man, yes. that friend of yours who yes. came in the middle of the night and that yes. was your first major exorcism. I, right. I didn't perform the rite of exorcism that night. <clears throat> Not that night. Interesting. No, I can't do that. I need permission from the bishop to do that. Wow. So, so what did you do? So I started commanding the demon in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be quiet. I, I, uh, I commanded the demon in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to, to sit down, to, to uh, keep the man at peace, to keep him in his chair. Why was he manifesting a lot of anxiety? And and also, how yes. did he show up at the at the abbey at the time? So this is a young man, and he was so distraught. He got in his car and drove over. And in this case, no, case, he was okay. he was he was already there with his family for another reason. I see. And and his his struggles had been amplifying in the previous weeks. His family was becoming quite alarmed. So he was there anyway. He didn't drive himself there. Uh, I've never seen someone in the act of diabolical possession, the act of what we say, a manifestation of a demon, able to drive themselves to a, a monastery for, for deliverance. Because they're so out of control. They're so out of control. And are they out of control? I mean, in the scripture, there's these cases of, um, you know, men attacking themselves with rocks yes. and breaking chains, yes. you know, superhuman strength. Yes. And all of these manifestations. Have you seen manifestations like seen that, that in your ministry? Yes, yes. So the, 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 you're talking about the Gerasene demoniac who is the one in, amongst the Gerasenes, that non-Jewish village mm -hmm. where Jesus was there and this man was living out among the tombs and he would strike himself with rocks. And that's the one where when Jesus delivered him, the, the demons went into this herd of swine and cast themselves off the cliff into the sea. This is there, there's a very interesting diabolical psychology in that story. We exorcists love to talk about or mm -hmm. think about that. We see there because it's scriptural. So that's not only true as an, a scene from history, which happened, but it also shows us in an archetype how demons work and how possession looks and how deliverance happens. So we get that the gospel teaches us these wonderful things, mm -hmm. amazing things. So yes, uh, that particular man exhibited superhuman strength and um, speaking in languages that he had never studied and understanding languages that he'd never studied. So there, there are the, the church, the Catholic church gives us the the a list of indications that we should look for to see to 
to know if the person is possessed or not. Both of those are some of those demonstrations, superhuman strength and the knowledge of things that they can't possibly know otherwise. So can a possessed individual physically harm themselves yes, or others? and they often do. To the degree of killing someone yes. else? The, the end game for demons is always suicide in despair because what the what a demon wants a demon wants you or me or any of us they want us to first of all to um, rebel against god's will they want us then to persist in that rebellion to the point of despair and hopefully to take our own life in despair so that we're certain to go to hell that's what they want but that would require the person chooses it to some degree. There's some level at some at some absolutely at some point in that long sad story of that trajectory to despair and then eventually suicide. And it doesn't have to be suicide, but they they want the kind of um, angry despair that is a, an act of rebellion against God. And at some point along the way, of course, the person would have to choose. We don't you, you, we can't be caught unawares mm. in hell. Just like we can't make we can't commit a sin without choosing it, right? We have the free choice of our will. That's the beautiful gift of the of the freedom of the sons and daughters of God. We so are free agents. If, is there is it possible for there to be a case where someone is possessed and they do something wrong while they're possessed? I mean, it could be as simple as they break an object that doesn't belong to them, mm -hmm. but it could be as harmful as they harm somebody else, mm -hmm. but they are not in any way culpable for yes, that. Yes, that could be, yes. Do you have if, you ever seen that? Uh I, I would say where I've seen that, let's say the foul language of the blasphemy that they're say, that are com that's coming out of their mouth, it's not them, and it's and they're not responsible for mm -hmm. it. So because of course, again, to commit a sin, it has to be grave, a grave matter, it has to be a serious, you know, something that's contrary to God's will. We have to know that it's contrary to God's will, and we have to choose to do it anyway. So in the case of possession, where the the demon or demons are the ones who have, who are with whom. I'm speaking or who are manifesting themselves and that the person who is possessed is still in there, but not acting. Very often the person is not, does not remember what happened while the manifestations are happening. Sometimes they do, but that more often than not, the person has a kind of a blackout of, its, of a sort. And when they come back, they may or may not remember what was happening during that demonic manifestation. It depends on the, on the, how the person is possessed. What so. happened to the young man? Thanks be to God. I mean, God works, like, like I said, it's true that God works all things to the good for those who love him. This young man, I, we at my abbey was a priest giving us our community retreat that very month who was a very accomplished exorcist and a kind of a, a puppet master almost of the exorcist in the country at that time. And so he was there and I knew that he did that work. And so I was able to have a kind of a crash course with him in person and how to help this young man through the summer over, you know, week, first of all, every day for a while and then weekly. And then every two weeks we were praying with this man with the diocesan deliverance ministry team, you know, a number of priests and lay folks. And it was a beautiful, beautiful experience. This man was liberated. Thanks be to God. He's alive today, married, you know, putting together a family recovery. He's recovering. He'll be recovering probably for the rest of his life. But that was a when Christ is always victorious. How does it happen that someone becomes possessed? Yeah, it's a good question. There, there's, there are a lot of ways. There can be um, everything from dappling in the occult. Uh, Ouija boards are extraordinarily dangerous. Ways of opening oneself 
up to demonic forces that are already out there waiting and giving them an opportunity to enter into one's life. That can be through um, curses or things cast upon you from the outside. It can be with dappling with the occult from of your own choice. Hypnosis is extraordinarily dangerous. In this particular, any kind? I think any kind. I think it's very dangerous. Any place where we relinquish the own our own control of our interior life and allow other things outside of us to manipulate that, like a hypnotist or um, astral projection, all of these things where people are thinking, I'm going to try to surrender myself to something outside of me that is who is not Jesus Christ. There are plenty of forces out there who are saying, I'll come and be your friend. So, so dappling in the occult, um, uh, psychics, tarot card readings, all of these things are very, very dangerous. And they're so, they're more and more prevalent all the time in our country. I, I drive, just driving around on the streets, you know, you see the, the psychic on the corner. I think, gosh, that person's probably a charlatan, but whoever's paying the money to have those cards read or whatever else they're doing, there are plenty of demons who are happy to get involved. Mm. So um, surrendering oneself when they're, you know, to serious addictions, especially sometimes a, a, addictive uh, behaviors, um, hedonic lifestyles. What is that meaning? Hed you know, like, like hyper, hyper, yeah, hedonism, hypersexuality, mm -hmm. or, you know, giving over to just the, the free for all of, um, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll proverbially, you know, that kind of that, that surrender of one's life to just one's lower pleasures in a very consistent and deliberate way that can open up one's life to, to demonic influences. So there was a story from a documentary last year made by Netflix. Um, it was Harry, um, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. And it was, okay. I think, talking about their love story. And in it, they had this scene, I think it was from that, or it was their Oprah interview. It was one a recent public uh, comments that they made. I think it was the documentary. Anyways, they talked about how they went to a site. I think Harry went to a psychic and she somehow knew about an ornament hmm. that had been broken on their tree. Hmm. And she had this insight that seemed otherworldly to yes. Harry. That yes. could, but it was it, for him, it was a positive experience because it confirmed that his grandmother was looking out for them who had passed. Right. What's going on in a case like that? Yeah. So um, in, in the second letter to the Corinthians, the 11th chapter, St. Paul says, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. That I don't know what happened there, Lila, but I would guess it was something like this. That psychic is maybe, maybe not even aware that he or she is consulting demonic influences. But, you know, the, a whole practice of basically saying, give me some knowledge that that person otherwise doesn't have. And there's a demon who says, okay, I'll do that for you, you know, and tells them something that's interesting, curiosity, peaking and consoling. You know, they, they walk away from that consoled. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Grandma loves me. But actually what's going on there is the demon's like, I'm happy to be your friend. You want to do this again? Why don't you come back and consult the psychic again? Or, you know, how else can I help you? Because it's taking them away from Jesus Christ yes. as the authority and yes, the Lord. Yes, exactly. And so it's the also, demon's happy to kind of look 
gentle for a time. Absolutely. But does he get vicious eventually? Eventually, I mean, sure. Eventually knows the long-term plan for this man seeking the psychic for advice is that I'm going to wreck that man's marriage or Absolutely. I'm going to destroy that man's Absolutely. life in some other way because there's I'm further separating him from the one true God. Absolutely. They play the long game. They don't care how they get to the end of the story. If that means, you know, consoling that person for a while, you know, showering them with riches and success and as you said, you know, this relationship is so wonderful, but I'm going to have to divorce my wife for it or whatever, right? Yeah, absolutely. They can, they will disguise, they're, they're liars, deceivers, and they're way smarter and more powerful than we are. <laughs> you know? So there's probably people listening who are like, okay, this is scary. Yeah, crazy. Maybe, yeah, maybe right. they have been to a psychic once, or maybe back when they were younger, they, you know, play with tarot cards or, you know, they're listening and, or maybe they, you know, we're living the hookup lifestyle and they're like, okay, shoot. Am like, I yeah. am I trapped? Am, am I trapped? Have I opened myself up for demons? What would you say to anyone listening who is concerned about their spiritual welfare, yes. but they're not sure what to do? Right. What's the answer? Okay. I think that, well, the answer is always uh, drawing closer to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and to his church and to the sacraments. So there is nothing more powerful on the face of the earth than the sacraments of the Catholic Church. So if someone has had a rough past, hedonic lifestyle, you know, all of the sins of one's youth and they're worried because of what we've just been talking about that wow i might i might have really opened myself up to some bad things in my life go to confession that's what it's there for if we're sorry for our sins and we have recourse to the mercy of our savior jesus and let him wash us in his precious blood what if they're not catholic okay if they're not catholic then i would say explore roman catholicism <laughs> first right but but also also ask the lord to forgive you your sins you know love the love of god heals all of our wounds, right? That we always have access to salvation if we choose it, if we ask for it. The Lord wants all men to be saved. That's what the, that's what the gospel says. I was given a piece of advice by a spiritual director once when I was on my spiritual journey and I was, I think, going through the process of becoming Catholic and he told me the devil's like a barking dog that can bite you. Mm -hmm. I mean, he can be very vicious, but he's tied to a fence. Mm -hmm. And so if you get close and put your hand out, yeah, he'll bite, he can bite you. Yes. But overall, don't worry about the yapping yes. because the, the devil loves attention. The devil loves, he wants, he's jealous of God and all his power. And, you know, that being said, it's good to still know yes. the, the realities of the spiritual war. That's that right, because in. that's that you're, you're absolutely right, Lila, that if we uh, if we approach the chained barking dog, we might get bit. That's absolutely true. And it's also true that the whole demonic world wants to remain unknown and unrecognized. And the devil loves it when we don't believe he exists. Hmm. So there's a kind of quest for hiddenness in that if we can explain everything in purely natural terms, no, it's just whatever, then that they have a they have a leg up because we're not aware of the war that's being waged against us. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So it might be that you don't even know that there's that dog chained to the fence. So you gotta at least acknowledge the dog. Which is why this conversation <laughs> that you're having is a good right. one, I think, for people watching and listening. So right. that, yeah, we, we there is a war happening all around us all the time. And it's the it's the war for our souls and for our eternal life. Mm -hmm. So when you were, after this first encounter with this young man, you got yes. thrown into the boot yes. camp for how to be an exorcist. You had <laughs> yes. this, you know, exorcist in chief yes. guy that providentially was there and Thanks he was training you. Right. What did, what was the toughest case you dealt with? Well, that was a pretty tough case. I mean, that, that was a very difficult situation. The one that followed it uh, about a year later, I guess, was a very different kind of case, a beautiful suffering woman from another state 
whom the deliverance ministry team flew in that chief exorcist man thought that it would be the right match there's a it's a it's a strange world with all kinds of twists and turns but it's often the case that the lord in his providence raises up certain priests who are particularly skilled at dealing with certain kinds of demons or certain sort of cases of exorcism and so this particular priest who was at my abbey in the kind of boot camp as you said was good at pairing up cases that needed the right sort of priestly ministry and so he sent this other woman our way and uh that case was not so easy to i i it wasn't so happily resolved mm. uh she was someone that it seemed that the lord was asking to suffer at greater length so every possession? case it was a case, it was, of, it possession. Was a case of possession and what was that what were the things that you were dealing with well uh her physical ailments were practically incapacitating that the she had been struggling with this with this um problem in her life for such a long time that she was almost immobile she was she was frequenting the sacraments as best she could she wanted to be a good woman she was a very good woman but she was just kind of crippled in her body by long years of this spiritual war it was tragic to watch and beautiful beautiful to watch because she was really thirsting for holiness and achieving it i think you know it's not unusual for someone who's possessed to be a saint wow and and again this is all god's providence that somehow he knows that that this is going to be for the good of the building up of the kingdom of god this is um again as sort of lots of thoughts just sort of flow in conversations like this lila but you know suffering is not a bad thing <laughs> we know that because we look at the crucifix right the lord shows us the example of suffering the perfect example of suffering there aren't that many um, I'm trying to I'm trying to be gentle toward the people who are listening who are not Catholic, but there aren't that many denominations of Christianity who understand the the role of suffering in the Christian life, and so here's a very extreme example of what suffering might look like in the Christian life, and um, that woman is a good case of that. So, um, one a couple of things I want to say just while it's on my mind, the right of exorcism, the major right of exorcism, the way that unfolds is that a bishop in his diocese is the high priest. He's the he. He, is, he has the fullness of the priesthood and he shares that with the priests who are in his, under him and under his authority, the diocesan priests. The bishop is the chief exorcist in a diocese. Usually in this day and age, he delegates to a priest or two the possibility of using the rite of exorcism. And uh, so that's why it requires the permission of the bishop. Demons are legalists. They know all of the truths of the faith. They know every theological truth perfectly they know that jesus is the savior they know they know everything and they also know that that jesus christ instituted a hierarchical church governed by the apostles and their successors so they know that the bishop is the one who has the authority in the name of jesus to cast them out and if the bishop doesn't give another priest that authority then the, the, the demon will t they'll, they'll tell you this you don't have an authority to cast me out wow have you been told know. that by a demon? Well, no, because I have the authority. Okay. <laughs> but, but they, but <laughs> like, they, got you. <laughs> yeah, they're they're legalists. They're they're perfect intellects. So you have to cross all the t's and dot all, uh, cross all the t's and dot all the i's. So that said, exorcism is what we call a sacramental. It's like wearing a scapular or carrying a rosary or having blessed holy images or blessing yourself with holy water. It's not a sacrament. Going to confession is way more powerful. Receiving the Holy Eucharist is way more powerful than the rite of exorcism. 
sometimes we need that ritual to actually break the ties that the demon has on people's lives, to break them officially in the name of the church, in the name of Jesus, through the church to, to set that person free. In the case of yeah. the woman you mentioned yes. who God is permitting, it sounds like was continuing to permit despite major rite of exorcism, continued possession. Yes. And she was suffering greatly. Yes. Uh, but it sounds like heroically she was heroically, suffering with love. Definitely. Yes. Offering that up. What ended up happening to her? I don't know. I don't know. It's often the case. Uh, it's often the case that these people who find them themselves in these very dire situations also have very scattered, chaotic lives. Because very often that's also coupled with some serious psychological wound, woundedness. So that's part of the part of the real art, I would say, of, of deliverance ministry is sorting out what is psychological, what is natural, what it, what can be helped by natural means and scientific and medical means, and what is actually spiritual. That's very difficult, but those two things often go together. the The serious psychological woundedness is a is a fertile ground for demons to be involved in people's lives sometimes. And so, in this particular woman's case, I don't know what happened to her because she sort of fell off our radar. Mm -hmm you know, not reachable by phone or by email or one of those beautiful strugglers that whose life was just difficult in every way. So in any sort of population, so I think about like San Francisco. So I'm from the yeah. Bay Area and walking through the streets of San Francisco, there's a lot of suffering homeless on the streets, yes. drug addiction, yes. traumas, you know, folks acting out, you know, half naked. I mean, really tragic, tragic scenes and, you know, a humanitarian crisis, I believe, in the in the city because Absolutely. of how we're handling it. But in those cases, you're you're clearly seeing a lot of mental illness on the Correct. streets. Uh, how often is that obvious mental illness also, would you say, a case of demonic activity. I would say again, I'm I'm not an expert exactly in this, and I don't want to I don't want to people to think that I'm you know sort of authoritative in this opinion that I'm going to give you right now. Demons love to capitalize on the weakness of individuals wherever they might find them, whether that's through some addictive personality or family woundedness or um, moral weakness. In the case of mental illness, demons love to capitalize on that. So they will certainly, I think, almost always make that person's struggle worse because they can, because they're punks and they hate us. So there's a weak suffering person who's psychologically wounded, they'll make their life worse. And I see that, um, I see that often as a priest, I have just a story about that. I was walking onto a psychiatric ward to minister to a Catholic who was, in, who was actually um, locked into the psychiatric ward for a few days. And I was taking that person Holy Communion and going to hear that person's confession and, and sort of minister to them in that very serious situation they found themselves. So I walked into the psychiatric ward in my habit with the Holy Eucharist in a pix, you know. And the response of the other people, the other psychiatric patients on the ward was very, very interesting. Some I could see immediately manifesting demonic activity because wow. a priest walks in with the Holy Eucharist. They probably weren't aware that that was what was happening to them. There was another. How could you tell that it was mnemonic activity? Well, sometimes they'll shout at me, you know, blasphemies, get out of my sight, you wicked priest, you know, with with really serious language. I mean, that kind of thing, abuse, verbal abuse, just on seeing me, uh, because this war is very, very real and it's present all the time. There was one one young man on that ward actually, as I was ministering to this young man. Of course, on a psychiatric ward, nothing is private. We had to sort of put ourselves in the corner, but there are people watching it because it's a psychiatric ward. So it wasn't like we were 
the two of us, you know, in a private situation. This one young man, he was a teenager. He kept walking around the room, looking and looking and looking. I could tell he was hoping for some kind of word of peace from the priest who's in there on the ward with the Holy Eucharist. He probably didn't know that. And I could see that there's a man who probably has some kind of demonic activity in conjunction with his psychiatric issues and he's looking for help, you know? So it's, so to, that's a long way of answering your question. I think often there is demonic exacerbation of these crises that we see all around us. I'm certain of it. Hmm. It has to be the case. What's your advice to someone listening who is wondering, okay, I have this in my family or I myself am facing it, you know, mm -hmm. some mental health issue mm -hmm. um, or some like deep wound or resentment that they carry on forgiveness. Um, what's the proper lens to see this through? Maybe they think they're listening like, okay, I need deliverance ministry. Right. I right. need deliverance ministry. Do all people need some kind of deliverance ministry, would you say? What would yes. what would be your general advice? That's a, good, that's a really good question. I think that we all need the sort of deliverance that comes from the God, the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be saved from our sins. That's deliverance, you know? The right? ultimate. It's the ultimate deliverance. We need salvation is what we need. And I would say that in all of those places that you enumerated, that kind of clinging to a resentment or family woundedness or problems with addiction in one's past or one's family history or whatever, yes, that's all place that needs deliverance, but it probably doesn't need specific deliverance ministry from a priest or the, or the deliverance ministry team of a diocese. It probably doesn't need that. It probably needs a good confession. Very often in confession, we priests will also say deliverance prayers. Mm. Is Let's say someone is confessing regularly some addictive behavior that they're trying to shake and they're going through all the proper means. They're you know, in the 12-step program and, doing this, and they just, they're stuck or they're struggling with, I don't know, with um, adultery. And they want to, they want to get over this struggle and they have a hard time, you know, sins of the flesh and, or whatever. Sometimes we'll pray a deliverance prayer there in the confessional to say, well, if there's a demon associated with this particular struggle in your life, we're going to try to, we'll ask the Lord to free you from that. So there's that kind of, we call that minor exorcism or deliverance, which is very common in the sacramental life of the church. But no, I don't think people need to be alarmed that I need to call the bishop or call the, the Dassin headquarters, you know, and say, you need to say an exorcism over me. Meaning you would know if you, if it was really possession, you would know. That's right. <laughs> it's not like you're wondering, am I possessed? You yeah, would know. You would know. It would be so bad. You would know. That's right. You would be desperate. You'd show up at the, at the monastery at <laughs> yes. St. Abbey's. Uh, your, your, life, your life will have already come apart completely. Okay. And your you know, life is basically not functional for you. <laughs> you know, so. So, so if someone's listening who is Protestant or evangelical, we've got a lot of listeners who are. Yes. And they're saying, well, they've had experience. We're in the name of Jesus Christ. I bind this evil thought. And I yes. think Catholics do that, can do this too, because there are certain prayers that you can pray, yes. um, exorcism prayers you can pray as a, just you know, not as a religious person. Right. And people listening who are um, evangelical would say, well, I can, the Lord I feel has given me, maybe they have this own experience in their life. I know friends of mine who they felt that they were in experiences where there was, they thought demonic um, oppression perhaps, or activity of some kind. And by saying the words of you know scripture and by mm -hmm. calling on the Lord, they felt they were able to free themselves from that. And they're yes. maybe even in prayer ministries where they help other people and they pray prayers over other people. Is that all? How do you see that as a Catholic priest? I see that that's the Lord's work mm. through his 
through his believers. Christians are Christians, you know? So even if someone in, 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 from the perspective of a Catholic priest, they don't have the fullness of the sacramental order, um, you know, but they're Christians and they call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and he hears their prayers. You know, we, we have a lot in common. We have a lot in common in a certain respect, a lot more in common than we don't have in common. That's a great, that's a great consolation, isn't it? Um, so yes, of course, the prayers of the faithful, the prayers of Christian believers are powerful. We know that we have that great confidence as believers. That's a beautiful thing. And so if we call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, if one of your evangelical or Protestant you know, followers is doing that and it's effective in their life, that's because Jesus wants it to be effective in their life. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thanks it's be to very God. consoling to know that he's available for all of us to call on him. Absolutely. Even if you're not even a believer yet and you're saying, help me believe, you know, the Lord, yes. the Lord wants to come At the name and, of Jesus, every knee shall bend hmm. under heaven, right? Every knee shall bend at the name of Jesus. That name is powerful. Words are so powerful, so powerful. Names are so powerful. It's why we only have a certain small number of the names of the angels from scriptures. You know, they're big creatures. We don't we don't deserve to know their names. Wow, <laughs> that's an interesting. Michael, Raphael, Gabriel. That's an interesting point. So yes. you you said earlier there's two thirds angels, one third demons. Yes. And you said that's in scripture. Yeah, that's the book of Revelation. So okay. a third of the angels fell from heaven. Yes. So talk to us more about that. These angels. What are they doing? <laughs> what are they doing? Uh, you know, what are they, the good angels or the fallen angels? The what good they, angels. We'll talk about them for a minute. <laughs> yeah, let's talk, talk about the bad that. ones for a little while. <laughs> yes. um, the good angels. So, you know, when I became Catholic, I discovered that you, the Catholic Church, taught teaches that you have a guardian angel that yes. God gives you at least one, and yes. that was really exciting thought to learn about this guardian angel. And in Scripture, there's the talk of angels who are accompanying you know, and, and lifting you up and helping you. Yes, I in the Psalms in, and- Yes, yes exactly. Right. I think in the evangelical and the Protestant world, there's still a belief in angels to some degree, but there's sort of a hesitancy about mm -hmm. over developing the belief because they would say, oh, it's right. not scriptural, Our Lord Jesus says in the Gospel of St. Matthew, talking about the little children, do not scandalize the least of these little ones for their angel is always looking on the face of the heavenly father. It's from the words of our savior. So what does that mean? What does it, it mean to have that, a guardian angel? Okay, what does it mean? So. Yeah, th that's a beautiful question. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century developed the theology of angelology, the theology of the angels very extensively, but of course it's all scriptural. And the ancient, the ancient Christian commentaries, you know, the ancient fathers of the church, Origen and also St. John Chrysostom and the Greek fathers and the Latin fathers, they talked a lot about angels. We know that they exist from the Holy Scriptures. Obviously they're all over the Old Testament all over the Old Testament and in the New Testament, right? Gabriel, the Archangel Gabriel comes and announces the incarnation to our Blessed Mother, right? And by the way, I love that there is an undercover angel. Yes. Um, <laughs> and in, in, in the story of Raphael, that yes. he's an undercover angel who pretends to be a like kinsman or whatever to yes. basically set two people up in, in Isn't a that happy so marriage. Which I, 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 when I, there was a, you in know, the book I, of Tobit, yeah. I, I, book Tobit, yeah, I did undercover work, you know, in the past to expose abortion clinics and things like that. And live action still does it. And there was a debate in the, in the church among some, you know, Catholic theologians about is it ethical to mm -hmm, do mm -hmm. undercover work and represent yourself as something you're not for a time to mm -hmm. accomplish a certain goal. And I would just say, well, what about the angel? Right. You know, well, I would so. say, and they're angels, they can do what they want. So, I mean, well, that's, that's fair. Meaning, <laughs> meaning angel, the morality that binds angels is different from the morality yes, that binds or, humans. Yes, or it's often the case, sometimes in scripture, especially in the Old Testament, we have examples of things where it seems, it seems like, well, that's not an example to follow. Hmm. You know, Abraham's deception of the people in the land he took his wife to and said, no, she's my sister. 
there are things that we see that are scriptural that we say of course that are not to be but can imitated. angels do evil things no, absolutely not good angels no, yeah so in that not. case they you... always do god's will perfectly mm -hmm. they cannot stray from doing god's will so the the the, the, the debate at that time was is it possible to do undercover work representing yourself as something that you're not for a period of time, which, by the way, is all acting. But right. <laughs> um, is that possible to do that morally? And I would argue yes. And there were many that argued yes. And I thought one example of that could be the was, that the, was that the angel did that. And, you know, he wasn't committing evil by doing it. Mm -hmm. It was part of the will of God. Certainly. The for different ends, but it was still a good end. The angels certainly can never do anything but God's holy will. And actually, just to wrap that part, we don't have to dive into that right now, Lila, because that would that would take us a little bit far astray <laughs> as far as the morality. Mm -hmm. That would be a moral sure. conversation, which is a very interesting one, an mm -hmm. important one. We, it's always true that the ends don't justify the means. So the examination there has to be, are those means legitimate right. or are they sinful? And that's the whole question. And we can say certainly with the angelic world, there's never the possibility of an angel using a sinful means to achieve God's will. We might not understand exactly how it works, but we can be certain that they're, the, the means that they choose will always be good means never mm -hmm. wicked means if that of course, makes sense of course the um so the guardian angel question you know there there are so many of these creatures there are billions and billions of like, that scriptural language you know myriads upon myriads serve him there are billions and billions of angels uh saint padre pio said that if we could see the demons it would darken the light of the sun if we could see them it would cloud the sky so completely that we would not the sun would not shine on the earth if they were visible and material that's the demons I mean, so we have these some amazing kind of revelations of the mystics about this. Each of us is assigned an angel when we're born. Every human being, man and woman of every race. At of birth all time. or conception? At, at birth. St. Thomas birth. says it's at birth. Wow. Yeah. He says that uh, St. Thomas talks about that in the Summa. He asked that question. And of course, this is not defined by the church. This is mm. just theological reflection. Mm. But as long as the child is in its mother's womb, it's protected by the mother's guardian angel, which is Aww, a beautiful that's thing. That's beautiful. And that when mm. the child is born, that's when its guardian angel is assigned to it. And and then, and what's that angel's job? The angel's job is first of all, to protect it physically, to protect that child and to bring it to the saving waters of baptism. Every person born after the fall of Adam and Eve is born into a state of sin and we need salvation. So the angel's job is to try with all its might to have the gospel preached to that person so they can be saved. Because then, then the angel's job to protect it and to help it to grow in virtue and to help it to achieve the end for which God created it, that is heaven, will be much easier. <laughs> so, so what should you ask your angel for help with in the day to day? Everything, absolutely everything. Your angel never sleeps. They're looking <laughs> upon the face of God. Its sole task is to get you to heaven, to help you to get to heaven to protect you you can ask your angel to inspire you with holy thoughts you can ask your angel to go ahead of you to prepare that conversation that difficult conversation you have to have with your husband or with your children or a business meeting you can send your angel to console someone who's suffering you can they want to be involved in our lives they already are and someone listening who, again, is maybe not Catholic and they're yes. thinking, okay, it sounds crazy. It sounds, priest. It sounds crazy. Priest. <laughs> no, of course not. Um, but it sounds nice. But, you know, I would just ask the Lord for that directly. Absolutely. I would just ask the Holy Spirit directly to help me with those holy thoughts or to help me in the conversation. And this is, you know, the conversation I've had with uh, my, you know, Protestant brothers and sisters about, yes. well, what's the point of Mary yes. too um, right. with her intercession when you have the, the intercessor of Jesus Christ? What's your response to that? The role of the angel versus the Holy Spirit or our Lord? Yes. 
we the Lord loves to use what we call instrumental causality. That's a philosophical expression. But how is it that you got to know about Jesus Christ? Some person probably preached the gospel Absolutely. to you, right? Who teaches you who the Lord Jesus is? Your mother, your father, a good friend? He didn't come and appear to you directly. He used that instrument, that person. Mm -hmm. The Lord loves to use instruments to affect his holy will. Mm -hmm. Why? Because he wants to share his goodness. Mm -hmm. the, the, our heavenly father created the whole universe. He wants us to be able to share in what it feels like to pour out goodness upon one another. So he loves to use instruments, the saints in heaven, the saints on earth, the angels. He shares his creative goodness through these instrumental, these instruments, these instrumental causes. So that way we can all become his hands and his feet and his face and his voice. Does that make sense? Of course. So of it's course beautiful. You, we should talk to the, the God the mm -hmm. Father and we should talk to Jesus, his son, of course. And we should also ask those instruments that he's put in our life who are already in heaven and who are here on earth to be our intercessors because we're all collaborating together in this beautiful work, right? It's so beautiful. And it's the question of why did God bother creating humanity? Right. Out of generosity and love. Right. He loves love. He, doesn't, he, he didn't loves, need us. He doesn't need us for his own happiness or contentment. No, he's, he's perfect. perfect. Perfect within himself. He didn't need anything outside of himself. So I've heard some people say, I have multiple guardian angels, that they okay. would say that about themselves. One person, a, a few people have said that to me, you have multiple. I don't mm -hmm. know how they would know this. You have mm -hmm. multiple guardian angels. Is it possible for someone to have multiple guardian angels? So the common opinion amongst the theologians of our church is that each human being gets one. One is more than sufficient. It really is, you know, um, and, and all don't other things. Don't be greedy now. Don't be greedy. They're, they're, it's more than sufficient. And it's funny, we don't properly utilize the one, right? <laughs> right. So can you possibly but utilize more than one? There's also some common opinion that if there's some office that a person has mm. that requires a greater protection or a greater... Um, um, yeah, protection, mm. then they'll have another a, a priest assigned. So it's common opinion that a priest at his ordination is given another another angel mm. or a bishop in his diocese. Or we might imagine, um, well, certainly it's true that each country has a guardian angel. We even get that from the scriptures. That's, you know, I was going to ask that about, and, about countries and cities. Yes, countries and cities have guardian guardian angels because these are, these are uh, arrangements of of humanity that need a special kind of protection, unique from just the protection of each individual. How big does a city need to be to get an angel? I don't think it needs to be big at all. Can it be like a settlement of five families? Perhaps. These are wow. these are mysteries that we don't really <laughs> penetrate. You know, it's not like God has not revealed these answers to us. We'll see that one day. We do know uh, that the children in, uh, in Fatima, the children who received mm -hmm. the apparitions of Our Lady in Fatima mm -hmm. a little over a hundred years ago, before Our Lady appeared to them, the angel of Portugal appeared to them a year before to prepare them to receive these beautiful apparitions of the message of the Blessed Mother in Fatima. So the angel of Portugal showed up there for those kids to, to teach them how to pray and to mm -hmm. show them what was about to happen. So we do see even in, in modern, again, these are not scriptural revelations. This is, these are, these are um, church approved, you know, extra revelation outside mm -hmm. of the ordinary, the ordinary kind of course of revelation so so back to demons for a minute um, okay. i wanted to ask you about some of the craziness we see in the culture today yes because a lot of people who listen to the podcast care deeply about that or they're concerned about it and you know we talk about the sexual revolution and the last few decades and just the manifestation of the, the proliferation of pornography abortion yes. 2500 abortions every day in this country um the divorce rate uh 
you know, more people are born to a single parent now today, non-intact families, what and sexual abuse rates have risen, mental yes. health, mental illness has risen, yes. all of these things. What does that mean when it comes to demonic activity? They're all over it, Lila. They're all over it. So I have a, I have a couple of things to say about that. One, just about abortion. You know, abortion is the sacrament of the diabolical underworld. What it's, does that mean? It's like the, the, the demon, the demonic world loves abortion because this is like such an offense to God and it's an innocent life sacrificed on the altar of human hedonic pleasure. And it's just, it's such an, it's such an offense, isn't it? And, and you see that in the really wicked corners of our political climate, how people cling to that cause like a religion. It's the sacrament of their false religion. Isn't that sick? It is. And the way they speak about it is with that same kind of religious devotion, diabolical religious devotion. It's the sacrament of the demonic underworld. It's their only sacrament. They have to have it. So Sick. when it comes to a, a girl facing an unplanned pregnancy, yes, she sometimes just felt with she faces this this wave of fear, yes, insecurity, yes, um, anxiety, all of these things that and temptation to have an abortion. You think the demonic is at play there? All over in the it. temptation, absolutely in the temptation, because because that that is feeding the de demonic religion all around us. So I, that's, I wanna say that first, but then I wanna back up a minute because um, I've learned from the other exorcists in the church, uh, especially in this day and age. As I said, you know, I, for the, those early years of my priesthood, I was doing more of that. It takes a lot of time. It's, it's, a, it's an arduous and beautiful ministry, but people's lives are chaotic and, and, and the priest's life becomes very chaotic and the, the demonic pushback is real. So depending on what our other assignments and what other ministries the Lord is asking us to do, sometimes we can do more of that and sometimes less. So that's happened to me periodically that I've dipped back into this world. But at the moment, I'm not doing this ministry other than minor exorcisms and kind of, you know, deliverance ministry with some of my confreres in a more um, confined sort of a way. But I've learned from the other exorcists in the church about uh, when they're, what they learn from the demons who speak back to them in the in this mm -hmm. ministry because you're talking to real personalities who are talking through these mm -hmm. people and and they're liars and they're deceivers but mm -hmm. there's a there's a, a kind of a dance that happens where uh the person who is possessed be, their, their personality has to be separated from the demonic personality and then that demonic personality is cast out of them through the ministry of the church and through the the power of jesus christ and while that's happening, it's a whole conversation and uh, a real wrestling match. In that conversation, that wrestling match, we learn a lot about some of the strategies of the demonic in this day and age. So there, there are, uh, and again, your, Pro your Protestant evangelical um, listeners and, and followers might find this a little bit strange. It's certainly much of what I'm about to say is not a scriptural kind of a revelation. So they don't have to see it as that. And we don't think of it as such either. Um, we do know the names of some demonic forces, Leviathan or Legion. Those are, those are biblical names that we hear that's, that have demonic Satan, you know, which is the, the stumbling block. That's what that word means, a stumbling block. So we have some names, but we don't have a lot of demonic names. And one of the things that the exorcist has to do is get the name of the demon because of that authority question. You name your children, you and your husband name your children because you have authority over them as their parents. Adam named 
all of the creatures in the garden because he and, and Eve had authority over them. God gave them that authority. When the exorcist demands the name of the demon, it's so that he can exercise his priestly authority, the authority of Jesus Christ over the demon. So we have these names of what we've understood to be kind of the five generals of the underworld, sort of those who are most, those demons that are most closely associated with Lucifer and are just like the angels are arranged in a hierarchy, the demons are arranged in a hierarchy as well, subservient to one another and so forth. They ape everything that's good. They mimic and ape everything that's good, like the sacraments, mm -hmm. like the fact that abortion is the sacrament of this world. So with the sexual revolution, the demon Baal, that's one of the demons we know about, the, that ancient awful God from the Old Testament, that was the work of Baal which was about sexual promiscuity, fornication, the severing of all of these important family ties like marriage. So that sexual promiscuity and the whole sexual revolution that we saw in this country in the 60s was the work of Baal and his minions. Very successful in that, you know, um, with, with all of the divorcing of human intimacy from the act of procreation. Mm -hmm. So that's artificial contraception, um, the no-fault divorce, all of these things. Uh, and, and that was to pave the way for then the next demons in this of these generals who could come and do their work. Asmodeus, that's a biblical name, who was the demon of male homosexuality. And so well, further- that's not, uh, that's not politically correct to talk about. No, of course it's not. But it's true because if we do, what is, what is human intimacy for? It's for the procreation of children between one man and one woman. God has blessed that with a, with a covenant that we call holy matrimony, right? That's what human sexuality is for and for the intimacy of the spouses, but especially for procreation. So it has to at least be open to the procreation of children, even if that's not what's going to happen because of infertility or all kinds of things. So male homosexuality was the work of Asmodeus run rampant in our culture and follows upon, as you can see, if, if human sexuality and promiscuity degenerates, then you can open the world to male homosexuality. Following sh shortly upon that is Leviathan, the demon Leviathan, who is the, the demon of female homosexuality of that kind of masculine slant, mm. followed quickly by Lilith, the, the, the demon of female, female homosexuality of the more kind of seductive, um, femme fatale sort, followed quickly, as we've seen so much, by Bo, uh, Bohemet, the demon of abortion. Because once all of that human sexuality has completely degenerated, what's the end in view? The abortion of God's, the, the killing of God's most innocent and weakest and most beautiful creatures. And we know these names because these have actually we, heard the devil, the demons admit. Yes, that's that how they we know are that, that they demon are, or they're commanded by that general demon. One or the other. Wow. One or the other. So what is the solution to this? I mean, the sexual revolution has created so much havoc. I, I work in education primarily and trying to inspire the good through, you know, podcasts is one of those projects and help people learn how to heal from wounds and learn what the truth is about relationships and all this stuff. But I mean, it's a spiritual warfare. It's spiritual warfare. Absolutely. It's not just intellectual or emotional, but it's spiritual. Yes, that's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. It's spiritual warfare. And 
And the more we can, I think, the more we can incorporate into our political activism and our uh, work on the natural level of just building up family life and community and relationships, healthy relationships, all of these things that you're, you and your podcast mm -hmm. are striving for, right? Building up the kingdom of God in all of these ways. If we couple that with, first of all, knowledge about the spiritual warfare and then prayer against it and a real kind of engaging mm -hmm. in that war to the degree that our Lord asks us to, we can win. Christ is already victorious. I mean, that's the good news of the gospel, isn't it? So looking at the sexual revolution over the last few decades, a lot of people I've talked to are just feeling kind of hopeless about the state mm -hmm. of things. You know, yes. we're in California. It's especially dark here. Yes. Um, are, do you think there are, by the way, more demons in California than in other states? I think so, only because there any any place where you see that degeneration mm -hmm. and all the ways that we see the culture degenerate politically and otherwise, of course, there's going to be more demons involved. It's hard to miss them if you walk on the streets of any downtown area with the zombies of the drug addiction, mm. homeless problem, right? And you right. see, okay, these these poor people, it's not their fault in a way. Maybe it was at some point, I don't know. But you think, gosh, it feels like this place is crawling with demons. Mm. So the, what I'm hopeful about is that, yes, demons, I think, helped initiate and tempt and create some of this destruction and free will. Human yes, beings yes, choosing, yes. choosing to go down the path because the demon can't force you to do anything. Exactly, you got to exactly. choose it <laughs> right. in the end. So, And the good thing is like the girl who's experiencing abortion temptation, like there can be her angel encouraging her, or Absolutely. God sending her angels, uh, you know, human beings like an angel to yes. encourage her. And you can always choose life like that. That's always the option. What do you think is going to happen, though, in the next decade or two? culturally Gosh. if the people of god get get activated spiritually and, yes. and in every other way well i think that you know we see I, I don't have well i live in a monastery lila so my perspective on it is something of an outsider's perspective into the culture well that's a good perspective i hope so i hope so it seems like the battle lines are being drawn more clearly maybe in the 1960s or in the 1970s maybe it wasn't so obvious who was who was at work because it's such a, such a gradual degeneration of the culture in those decades, right? It's like little by little, it's it, the demons play the long game, just as the the kind of wicked people in the political order play the long game. As we see more clearly what's dark and what's light, I think that helps us in a way to have the confidence to lean into where we can be victorious, like the overturning of Roe v. Wade. That was that was a triumph that most people were not expecting. Don't you think? Yeah, of course. It was- Many it was were so surprised. So surprised. It, it was we, such a happy it was, surprise. It happened. And so I think to see that as well, maybe it took a kind of division of the camps so that that victory could be won. And it seems like the more your followers and, and our followers at the Abbey mm -hmm. too, you know, people who are surrounding those points of light the you know great catholic or christian or just positive broadcasting you know and, and the digital platforms like us or monasteries or churches so forth the more people rally around those and find the strength they need and then take action in their life you know i'm going to raise my family in the faith or i'm going to really be mindful about my how i raise my children right and that might involve public schools it might not whatever but we're still going to be we're going to be Conscious, very conscientious about how we fight the battle so that we can keep pushing at least my family or my parish or my church community toward that victory line, even if we watch the dark side falling further and further away. I don't know. I think that there's, 
uh, who was it? Well, I had a friend once who said, uh, you know, it's going to get worse before it gets worse. <laughs> you know, you know? So, so. But isn't it, it already bad? It's already been I mean, bad. I, I, I hear that a lot. People say it's going to get worse before it gets better. Or, you know, Rome, the Roman civilization fell. Civilizations have fallen. Yes, yes. You know, we're a couple, few hundred years into the American experience. It's been a great run. It's huh? been a great one. It's going to fall. <laughs> but the good news is some of us might survive and we can build something on the rubble. Yes. And I, I hear that. And yes, of course, that's possible. Anything's possible. But I think. First of all, we're not fated to that. There's no fate to the civilization right. falling, except in the big, in the big, big picture. In the big, big picture, which is the, what we read about, we know that we know that there will be the the final persecution. We know that the, yes. you know the, the and and we also know that Christ will be victorious in the end. Now, people often ask us preaching, you know, are we living in that? I don't think so. It doesn't sure, it sure doesn't look like like it to me yet. I don't think these are these are the end times that we read about in Revelation. So you think those end times will, very practically speaking, be? tremendously difficult it's yes more than it is today absolutely absolutely that's what, what would that look like i mean that would look like everything that the speaking. scriptures say you like know the rocks falling warfare. the rocks falling down upon our heads and you know you know is that an asteroid hitting the earth? i don't know maybe it is <laughs> possibly the, we're not fully <laughs> sure but I, I that all that said and what's we, the period of time by the way end times because a lot of people today well, think yeah. we're in the end times or they think we're about to be in the end times the signs are here we've been in the end times since christ ascended into heaven we're in the last mm -hmm. age we're living out mm. we're living out his final victory we have been for almost well almost 2000 years now these are the end times they're always the end times but when are they the end end I don't times know. that's, that's <laughs> we, you, and how long is that end end time period yeah so that's extreme... again that's that's something that's given to us to know okay we don't and that's know. what uh, even the scriptures say and that. so it could be a day could be a day a day of just total havoc i don't think so that's not really what the that's not what the fathers of the church say about it mm. but we don't know with that, that's the point is that we are not given to know that. And the scriptures make that clear too, that we are, we don't know when the son of man will come. That's what the scriptures say. So we don't, we don't, we can't predict that and we shouldn't presume to try, but I do think it's helpful for all of us believers of all the denominations to realize that, that we are working out Christ's final victory from the time he ascended into heaven until he comes again in glory, whenever that's going to be later today or tomorrow or another thousand years from now. That's, I, I, I find that tremendously hopeful, mm. to be honest, because what that tells me is that however we feel like we're struggling or however we worry that we might be struggling more, it's always been like that for the church since the time of the apostles. That's very hopeful for well, me. Well, I think about the apostles and what they suffered. Yes. I mean, the martyrdoms yes, and the, every single and one, just like having to hide the like secretly, you know, in the catacombs and, you know, uh, Eucharist in the church of the, you know, hiding it from the Romans and yes. just what they endured compared to most Christians in the West today. Clearly, well, there's yes. tremendous Christian persecution outside of the West, but most of the audience here is Western. And we're doing we're so unpersecuted. Yes. I mean, we definitely we're, we're, we're seeing more persecution now than we ever have before in the West and certainly in our country. Um, you know, politically and otherwise, that's true. But compared to, my goodness, the Coptic Church in Egypt from the time of Saint Mark until today, we've got it pretty good. We can go to church, we can access the sacraments, mm. we can worship God freely for the most part. We're very, very fortunate, aren't we? It's that perspective is everything, mm. isn't it? Mm. My mother used to tell me when we were little children, and um, you know, I mean, like all little children, Catholic children or Protestant children, we all resist going to church on Sunday sometimes, right? And one of one of my mother's ploys 
to get us to um, come into compliance and to be grateful. She'd say, well, you know, there are parts of the world right now where there are Catholics who can't go to mass even if they want to. Mm -hmm. She always said China, but because, you know, under communist China, that there, she knew that there were Catholics there who didn't have priests and they couldn't go to mass. So I think that perspective that you just mm -hmm. brought up, which is look at how good we have it and be grateful to God for that. It's awesome. So Father, this is so fascinating. I'm sure people listening, there's lots more questions coming in. So I encourage folks to put them in the comments and uh, I don't know, can St. Michael's Abbey YouTube page come and talk to people or check yes. out your YouTube page to learn yes. more about everything. But a few more practical questions before we wrap up here for people listening. So okay. in the spiritual life and facing vices and trying to grow in virtue, how does some how does one navigate what is uh, or what is sort of some guidelines for people to know, okay, this is where I'm being tempted by an external mm -hmm. force. You know, the, the, I hear people say, oh, I'm getting really spiritual attacks. Yes. You know, I'm getting all these spiritual attacks. You know, my spouse is more angry at me today or things are rougher today. And it's because I'm doing this good work over here. I hear this a lot from some faithful Catholics or faithful people. Is there uh, some rules of the road for how to discern what one is dealing with in mm -hmm. one's life and to understand what is the, what are the forces at play? Because a lot of the times I think it could just be your own weakness. Yes. Could just be your spouse had a bad day. Yes. You know, don't just go right to this is a spiritual attack. Yes, spiritual warfare is real. But, uh, you know, I, I think there can be some harm sometimes in over-spiritualizing. I couldn't agree with you more, Lila. I think that there is harm in over-spiritualizing everything. It's true that the demons and the angels are involved in all of those things that you just said in God's almighty providence. So it might be that there is a correlation providentially between your, your spouse picking at you or being more irritable mm -hmm. because of the good work you're doing over here, whatever. That might be true. Our response to that as Christians is always going to be the same. And that is that I need to love my spouse <laughs> and I need to do what's right and good according to God, God's will as he manifests it to me. I'm going to respond as a believing, as a believer anyway. Sometimes if we overinterpret our life in merely spiritual terms, then things start to feel and get kind of weird. Hmm. You know, our life as Christians is not supposed to be weird. It's supposed to be like a leaven in the dough, right? Or like the light on the hill or like the seed that grows into the huge the, the huge plant, right? We're, we're meant to be, um, we're, we're, we're meant to live a life that is transformed by God's grace, not, not taken out of the natural world and made something like a bobble on a shelf. And if we over-spiritualize everything that happens to us, sometimes life can feel like it's a bobble on a shelf and not a real life that we have to live. Mm. Don't you think? Yeah. And, but then also I think, how do you avoid under-spiritualization? Yes, right. So that's, Because there's some yeah, people right. who say like, oh, I've never been tempted by the devil. It's just my, my own my free weakness. will and my yes. own weaknesses. So yeah, I'm sure some people face it, but that's not mine. And also, even if it was happening, why does it matter whether or not I know it was the devil? The temptation right. feels the same. Right. And I have to have the same response, which is to reject the temptation. Right. I think that sometimes then in that case, that excess on the other direction could make it so that people really stop praying mm. because they're, they're interpreting all of their life in such natural in such a natural way that they don't they don't remember to bring in the supernatural and have recourse to prayer or to or to interpret something in a positive way that says, okay, well, even if I'm struggling right now for whatever reason, or, you know, it seems like this week has been really, really bad or met with a lot of hardship or a lot of even internal family strife, having the right spiritual lens on that says that, okay, I can persevere through that because I know that 
this is part of the world that my savior has given to me to endure this week. So, so I would say, like in all things, the virtue is in the mean. Mm -hmm. And if we're excessive in one way or the other, then we're probably going to miss the boat. But if we can have that moderate middle road of, of not over-spiritualizing and also not over-naturalizing mm -hmm. the Christian life, then we're probably going to be on the right path and be peaceful. That's the whole point, right? And you said, how do I discern? So much of discernment in the Christian life is about restoring, looking for and rest or restoring if we've lost it, an interior sense of peace. And I think that that's a good way to discern what's happening. Am I at peace with that thought or with that interpretation? Or how can I pray or um, look at my life in such a way that I can restore that peace if I've lost it? And that's a, that'll help us keep, a, keep on that middle, that middle path, which is that narrow road that our Lord talks about. Any tools or tips for how to restore interior peace or maintain? Yes. Searching for and maintaining interior in, in peace. peace right? Jacques right. Philippe, great, great book. Great Read book that one. Yes, yes. You've meant, you mentioned earlier in this conversation, Lila, the name of Jesus and your Protestant evangelical mm -hmm. friends calling upon the name of Jesus. That's such a powerful way to maintain and restore, mm -hmm. restore peace is having recourse to holy thoughts and holy things and holy words. For us also, for the Catholic, for us Catholics, you know, calling upon the name of Mary, calling upon our Lord's name. So those brief prayers that bring us back into focus, mm -hmm. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, we love you, save souls. You know, that, that kind of, that, those brief prayers are such a great way. It keeps us as people of prayer, continuous prayer, which is what the Lord says, pray always. Right. I, I have one other suggestion. This is also by way of just a little bit of advertisement. So please do <laughs> for an advertisement for your work mm -hmm. and for our work at the Abbey, uh, filling yourself with good content, listening to great podcasts, mm -hmm. watching great video production. You know, you're you're doing a, a hero's job of building out your platform. The Abbott Circle at the Abbey, the Abbott Circle and the, the soon to be launched Evermote Institute. You know, we're trying to reclaim the digital space for Christ, mm, right? I love that. And and we all need to do that. Lay folks like you in the great ways that you're doing it, religious and um, consecrated people and priests like us, we're reclaiming areas of our life, areas of the culture for Jesus Christ. And I think your friends and followers and listeners can do that too at work, at home, you know, not everybody has to be a podcaster or a digital content producer like you are and like I am now, right? But we can recapture some of the ground that the demons have stolen from us. Amen. Okay, so to wrap us up, how do you fill your cup, especially when you've worked as an exorcist and in your ministry, you just have a lot of demands on mm -hmm. your time, but what mm -hmm. are some ways that you restore yourself? The liturgy in the of middle the, of the spiritual yes, battle. The liturgy of the hours, so that the divine office of the church. My job as a priest, canons regular, the kind of priest that I am with my confreres, our job is to pray seven times a day, the Psalms of David. We go to the church, we sing Gregorian chant, and we pray the scriptures. That is how I fill my cup. Uh, I, I celebrate the sacraments. I celebrate the holy sacrifice of the mass. Every day, I lift up the Lord's saving chalice and call upon the name of the Lord. You know, the, these... This life that our Savior has given us in the church that mm -hmm. he instituted is filled with everything we need. So that's how I fill up. I, I love praying the divine office with my community. I would, I would not be able to, I would not live with, I could not live without it. So, so praying the scriptures, essentially. Beautiful. Well, yeah. my brother, Paul Rose, has sing the hours 
which is allowing the lay people to join in some right. of the prayers um, of the, the daily prayers, like yes. vespers and yes, um, morning lots, prayer, morning lots, prayers yeah. and evening prayer. So I, I'll, I'll link that for people later as well. But good. And um, of course, and then mm -hmm. and then just because I'm such a devotee of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and that's part of our life as Norbertines, the Holy Eucharist and the Blessed Virgin Mary are some of the centerpieces of our spirituality. Mm -hmm. The Holy Rosary is it's, it's like a lifeline. The Holy Rosary is like a lifeline of continuous prayer. So that's that's another I, 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 I would be amiss not to mention the role of the Blessed Virgin Mary in the life of the Christian believer. <laughs> so, Well, and we look, we were talking about the sexual revolution and these demonic presences and forces, Lilith and these evil, uh, you know, the destruction of the child, destruction of marriage, yes. the destruction of human sexuality and what better model as a response than the Blessed Mother. Yes. Who ch said yes to life, who is generously given to us as a mother. Yes. Who's perfectly pure perfectly and good. Pure. And such a spouse, what a what a what what a marriage that was, huh? Wow, that's another <laughs> podcast, Father. We've yeah. got to do a podcast on the marriage of Mary and Joseph. Yeah, let's do it. It's a it's a fascinating one. Thank you so much, Father. You're welcome. Ambrose. Thank what you. What a gift this has been to me, and I'm sure to people listening. Praise the Lord! It's been a real joy, and I hope we can do it again, Lila. Where can people you. find your work? Okay, so um, look at the Abbot Circle. Uh, well, a couple of places: StMichaelsAbbey.com, TheAbbotCircle.com, and soon TheEverModeInstitute.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Father Thanks Ambrose. Thanks a lot, Lila. God bless you.